0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus. And if you've been a regular listener of this podcast, you've probably heard me talk time and then again about the fact that Pakistan does not have a micropayments gateway. Digital payments is still behind the curve. And you know, the fact that Pakistan had digital ID and an identity management system long before countries like India and that it was trailing um, was something that, you know, that needs to be changed. Um, and now it has changed. We have RAST, a micropayments uh, gateway. And to talk about RAST, I have with me Rihan Akhtar Saab, who's the chief digital officer of Karandaz. Karandas has played a key role in making all of this possible. So, Rihan Saab, first of all, thank you for joining us today. And congratulations to you and the team and everyone who's worked both inside and outside the government to make this possible.
1: Thank you, uh, thank you, Zair, for having me on this podcast and uh, extending the voice to your listeners. Uh, I think not only congratulations to us, but I think there are a lot of other players, you know, who have been involved in this key infrastructure development. Uh, yeah, so looking forward to the uh, to, to scaling up this infrastructure and really reaping up the benefits from this
0: so let's start with rast itself and what is the mission and vision of this micropayments gateway obviously it's just kicking <clears> off <throat> so it's scaling up will take time its use cases being developed will take time so help the audience understand first up what the vision is and also who all played a role in terms of making uh, making this possible hmm.
1: so i'll start with the, with the with the fact that what does rast actually mean the word and, uh, and while the infrastructure project has been going on for some time, but for last uh, you know, few months, you know, the, there was a discussion that what should we call this effort? <clears throat> and I think the overwhelming uh, view was that uh, we need to have a name <clears throat> which is common, which is uh, for the people, but it, but it also kind of gives a direction uh, in, the, in the name. There are a lot of other gateways which have pay in it, which have pesa in it. You know, depending on uh, the, the Pakistani context, and uh, State Bank also wanted to differentiate, uh, you know, this effort or this uh, system from other sort of systems and services. So, Ras is one word. Rast. it means Brahe Ras, which is direct. It means Rahe Ras, which means the right way. So there's a hidden message in this world. And we hope as the adoption of this uh, platform takes place, uh, people also realize that while adopting digital payments, they're, they're actually choosing a direct way, so hence prior asked, and and they're doing the right thing. Uh, because as you know, in Pakistan, there's a huge informal market and huge informal economy and cash is the king. So, to dethrone that thing, we have to have now a model, you know, which is digital and which is direct and which is the right way to, to, to use. So, and we hope that So, we hope that, you know, this name will also be a guiding principle for the system in in, in time and years to come.
0: And, And I think like also the fact that you said it's the right way. I think the users and the population of Pakistan also understands that there's a right way of doing transactions in your country as you as a citizen, where you try to formalize payments and make sure you don't do transactions that evade taxes, et cetera. And this will make all of this possible.
1: Definitely, definitely. I think that's where this system, when it was uh when we were nearing the stage of you know uh, launch and there were discussions with uh, for example the government uh you know the, the the current government and and they kind of picked this up that the system will not only digitize the payments and do financial inclusion but it will be the right way and documentation will also sort of you know be uh, be facilitated or documented economy will also be facilitated so technically you see Pakistan is a, is a fragmented market. You had this key question that uh, while other countries uh, did not have the ID, Pakistan had the ID, NADRA ID for a very long time. And why has it taken us so long to come where we are? So I think each market has its own dynamics and its own sort of phases of growth in a market like financial services, this is what we have seen in other countries and other markets as well, you need to intervene. That could be a private sector intervention as well, or it could be a mix, or it could be a public sector intervention just like Rasta as well. <clears throat> you need to intervene to unlock potential. <clears throat> because if you see the banks currently, you know, the model that they have, uh, they can actually exclude customers. And now I'm not being specific, but, you know, being generic. So hopefully I'm not stepping on some specific banks who may disagree with me, but in general, banks actually make money by excluding customers. So they say no to customers and still, you know, they have uh, very, very blue bottom lines. And if you have that kind of an industry, how do you motivate the industry to start covering the excluded, and on top of it, as citizens, uh, you know, we love cash, we like informality, we hate documentation, we don't want to pay taxes. So this, you know, the, both of these coupled together uh, is 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 the big problem. So while Pakistan had the ID, I think what Pakistan had missed or or has been missing on is a drive to open account. So we see that in 2005 and six with branches banking license being provided, there were two, three players uh, who started operations. There were actually more than five or seven, if I believe the number is correct, uh, banks who actually got the license, but there were only three or four who actually set up operations and then took it to some kind of scale. And after 10 years or 12 years now, what we see is that there are only two players, EasyPesa and JazzCash, who are still operating uh, their wallet at a sizable manner, and also the Asian network, which is very important for mobile money. But even with that kind of intervention, if you look at the demand side service, we only have 21% financial inclusion, which basically means that if you survey a common citizen, in a national representative survey, you know, 21% of them say we have an account with any of the institution. Uh, while on the supply side, if you see, you know, there be more than 50 million accounts that have been opened. Many are dormant. Uh, you know, we're not counting uh, unique accounts here. So, so, I I would rely on the demand side survey that uh, you know the market has not been able to provide the required coverage. That's one big gap. In some of the other countries, you know, uh, that gap had been uh, minimized even before digital payments actually took over. And that has been uh, minimized by driving government agenda, uh, central banks putting in targets for the banks to open up X number of accounts and Y village and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So in pakistan because it's a it's a private sector led market predominantly uh, in fact i think there's only uh, one large national bank which is a government-owned bank but otherwise it's all private sector mostly so you know they chose to exclude uh, citizens and they're still making a lot of money and that's why you know there was an intervention which was required to drive real interoperability in pakistan I mean, I would like to believe that uh, EasyPesa, JazzCash and other innovators like Habib Bank, UPL, uh, you know, they have done their bit. But again, if you want to cover 80% of the market, which is left out there, you need new business models, you need new layers of innovation. Uh, just like in China, there's one big player, WeChat, and that becomes the pseudo You know, incumbent super app and everybody has WeChat and you don't need interoperability per se. But in a country like Pakistan, where now the market shares are divided, you need real interoperability so that when the value proposition of DFS is provided to customers, it's provided in a simple, in a user friendly manner. And they don't have to struggle with learning each app. They don't have to struggle with learning how do I transfer money uh, in in one app versus how do I transfer money in another app, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It should be just like dialing a number. Uh, You dial a number in the same method regardless of what phone you have and what network you are in and what SIM you're using. So payments experience should also be universal in a way that uh, it should give sim same, same, same well, experience. I,
0: I think that that's a very important point, right? Like the, the key has to be, can your grandmother use this the same mm-hmm. way that she goes to buy her ration or send someone to buy a ration? If she can adopt this with minimal um, training or minimal issues, then it's mm-hmm. a successful mechanism, right? But I think a couple of things you, you mentioned that I want to touch upon and dive deeper into the first one that we hate documentation. Um, I agree. And there is this uh, idea that Pakistanis generally, I would say it's not just a Pakistani thing. It's anywhere. If you put onerous requirements on compliance, on documenting things, people will not want to do it because it takes away from their time. It's inconvenient. What is your view on why do Pakistanis in general hate documentation? Is, Is this what I just said that the onerous requirements of documentation are such that people shy away from this? Or is this something uniquely Pakistani?
1: I would I would divide this issue into three parts. <clears throat> one is people who don't want to get documented. And let's, you know, keep them out of the discussion because they have other motivation. The second one is uh, people who find it uh, you know, lengthy and, you know, uh, difficult to, to use documentation or fill in documentation. And that is the reason why they do not come into the formal fold. I think that's a, that's a large population. And the example of that is that they, for example, you know, people need credit or access to credit. It's just that the informal method, you walk into somebody who gives you an informal credit it could be your family it could be a friend or a loan shark or whoever sort of you know have access to and you go there and i think it's a it's a three-minute discussion and you get a credit and maybe you walk away with cash at that moment as well and if you compare to the bank you know you need to submit documentation even if for a credit that does not require collateral um you know the decision making process takes time and it could be number of days before your credit application is actually fulfilled and that's where i think the informal sector beats the formal sector hands-on um you know in in speed in recognizing the customer They're also taking, uh, you know, the same kind of uh, risk that the formal sector could be taking. But, you know, the process is very, very sort of uh, seamless. The third category of documentation is that while the documentation itself may not be that big, but if I need to, for example, if I'm registered in one bank and I walk into another bank, I need to start the process from scratch, so there is no interoperability of information. Actually, what should happen is in many countries have what they have done is that if I register one, well, you know, uh, once, and my KYC has been done, that KYC should be shared, so that the burden, even if it was a one-time burden, you know, I, I go through it and but then the next time i want to become a customer for another bank my credentials should be transferred and that would also ease and i think some european countries and i think uk has done that and some of the other countries are also trying to follow that model so so i think it's it's then how the information is set up and do the banks really believe that should they open up the information for others to share and the whole philosophical question that who does the information belong to? So it's my information. Does it belong to me, or is it actually when I've given to the bank now it belongs to the bank and he's the custodian, uh, and and will share whoever he, you know, I'm calling the bank. He, uh, you know, the bank would sort of you know want to share. The same issue with telcos. Uh, once you share the data, uh, who does the data belong to? And I think in the modern sort of uh, times. <coughs> Uh, for the benefit of the country, for the benefit of economy, I think there has to be uh, some kind of sharing of information across, you know, uh, companies as well as uh, cross industries uh, that would only benefit sort of everyone, of course, what we don't want to land up is a model like Facebook. Uh, and of course, you know <laughs> where we are. I would brother. say,
0: in the financial system, a model like Ant Financial, right? We all know Jack Ma's run into trouble in China. Mm. One of the mm. causes driving this is the fact that his company has amassed a lot of data about Chinese citizens and their financial mm. transactions. Has mm. very deep understanding of their credit history and their risk profile but it's not public, which gives the Ant Financial a monopolistic power in in the financial services industry. And there are other reasons why he's running into trouble, but one of the public, you know, the public stance of the government is that this is too much power and we want to have a dynamic and competitive marketplace and, and should put this information in a public repository so that if Uzair, who's been an Ant Financial customer wants to go to the next big thing, um, his credit history should transfer over and that other innovative business should have a level playing field. Right. I think that's what you're getting at as well.
1: Yeah. So I wish we, we reach that stage <laughs> yes. at least in terms of market coverage that we have one big sort of super player who, who covers all of the market, but, uh, but we need centralization of data and lack of centralization also leads to burden on, on, on the citizen. So even CNIC, we have to submit our CNIC so many times to so many different places. Uh, you know, I think for last few years, now what has started to happen is the use of biometric you know, verification, which is then connected with NADRA and you know, the ease that started to come with it. And I think, so, so that's where the whole design or bad design comes into play that it's not the citizen who, is, who does not want to get documented but you create so many hurdles in his way or her way that you kind of defeat the motivation and kind of give up, and you want to minimize your interaction with uh, uh, with, with such institutions. So I think that's at least my take on uh, on on on, uh, on documentation. The documentation could also be gradual. You yeah. see, the KYC could also be gradual, and and we have that progressive KYC model in banking as well, where you can start with a Uh, a minimum KYC and, you know, you can build on it. And as your risk sort of increases, you know, your KYC should also, you know, the depth, the knowledge that the institution should have about you, you know, that would also uh, increase. But right now, I think the discussion going on is, and you must have noticed that uh, the Russian digital account, which is an account which uh, people like yourself outside Pakistan could open in a Pakistani bank, and uh, enjoy a lot of benefits so uh, a, a remote kyc is allowed so now the discussion has been triggered that uh special treatment uh was there or and there are a lot of people in pakistan who believe that uh, if this option is provided a remote kyc is provided you know they would like to avail and not get into lines and especially with the COVID situation avoid crowded places and only go to banks you know when it is uh, really essential so the central bank is thinking uh, quite positively and aggressively on it that uh, there is already an example how can they now utilize uh, you know within pakistan as yeah. well yeah
0: or or not even go to banks at all right i i was thinking about yeah. our discussion last night and i was thinking through it's been almost a year since the pandemic here in washington and i haven't stepped my foot into a bank in that one year I've taken out cash from an ATM maybe three times Mm -hmm. Um, the rest of the transactions have all been digital either through Apple Watch or iPhone Apple Pay or through a Mm -hmm. card that's touchless Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you know no one's doing that anymore so I think that COVID has accelerated that shift um, across the world Um, you mentioned Nadra and I wanted to touch upon this as well because a couple of guests that I've spoken to on this podcast last year mentioned one issue that they felt needed resolution which was that Nadra had to start functioning more as a utility than as an institution that has to have a profit center and their idea was that Nadra charges per transaction in terms of when you connect into its database and get information. How do you see Nadra's role in enabling this, the evolution of this system along with RAST in terms of making sure that the more evolved, more mature use cases in terms of credit history, collecting information of people, keeping it secure as well, and then also making sure that emerging fintech startups can build upon that layer of data to accelerate the evolution of the system. What role does mm-hmm. Nadra play here?
1: Mm-hmm so you see uh and and i we have interacted with nadra as well and i think somebody i'm forgetting his name but you know they gave a great example and i actually believe that of using NADRA database as kyc uh it's tricky you see NADRA is a, is a passive database uh, by which what i mean is that if i change my address NADRA does not come after me and ask me what is your new address neither do they know right so they do not triangulate information and update information so if anybody in my family is deceased or i am deceased you know they're not going to fetch it from hospital that i'm deceased and they will update their database so it's a passive database in that aspect it is only as good as what information is updated in it so a the banking industry has to figure out that if that information with passive update, is fine covering their risk. I think where Nadra sits on goldmine is that they have issued a unique number to everybody in the country who's a citizen. They have some credentials which are secret, which could be used to verify a customer. It's just like x factor authentication so you know it provides that kind of authentication model uh, and then the fact that you know they have robust system so if you want to connect your system with them and fetch biometric for example because they, they collected biometric as well you know you could you could use that in your process i personally believe and and many dis- would disagree with me uh, i personally believe that even if you run this operation as a utility there are costs of running such a utility and 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 the and the plea from nadra has been that fine if you want us to run a utility somebody has to pay the build up cost if you expect us to also cuff up that capex and make it free for anybody to ping into our database and get a get a result out of it uh, you know, we need uptime, we need servers, we need capacity. So if the banking industry wants this kind of service, they should pay for it. I think somebody has to pay for it. Uh, even if the government decides to, you know, fund this or, to, because, you know, with the current infrastructure, Nadra's infrastructure is not suitable and not ready for massive, you know, you uh, Sessions, you know, which are coming in and pinging and you know trying to fetch information, infrastructure will just sort of become busy and, and 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 unavailable. So I think from that perspective, the the banking industry has to figure out where do they want to use the verification, right? Uh, you know, GSMA has created different models. Uh, there are other two-factor authentication models, you know, which could be uh, which could be enabled. So I think sometimes you know the whole sort of debate is masked under the rate that is provided by uh, by nadra also i think the banks make i think uh, decent money on on customers so you know they, they they should be able to absorb that is not the reason why i would as a if i were the investor i would not invest because uh, yeah maybe seventh five or six years ago, uh, when the cost of transaction was fifty rupee or very high, it may be the case. But now it has also come down. It is slab based. I don't think that's the that's the issue. Um, and, and I think and the, the could...
0: fact the, the fact that someone has to pay for it is important, right? I mean, that's the debate now that's turned in uh, taking more and more importance in India, for example, because they reduced the MDR to zero which means that the stack itself has no inflow of profit coming in. So how do you scale that up in that situation has become a bigger and bigger question mark because the adoption has gone up. You have to invest in servers. You have to upkeep, you have to provide customer service, et cetera. And I think that's what you're getting at as well, that if you expect Nadra to continue doing that somewhere or the other, there has to be a plan not only on CapEx, I would say, but on OpEx and that OpEx has to grow over time because this is only the beginning of the system itself.
1: Yeah, and I think a great example of that is uh, how telecoms have targeted uh, areas where it does not make business sense. So th- there is an entity called USF, You know, it's a universal service fund and X percent of revenue of, of telecom goes into that fund and then that fund is used to deploy infrastructure, telecom infrastructure in areas, uh, you know, where there's uh, no business sense. So, so there are methods many industries have adopted to kind of, you know, divide the load or divide the capex. Uh, there is no development fund in the financial industry in Pakistan. Uh, I think if the banks commit to that, and uh, partner with each other and x percent of their revenues go into a fund which can then be utilized with common understanding and under rules and regulations and and with a common uh, objective you know one could uh, one could distribute the burden so i think that's where pakistani financial market until recently a few years have been stuck waiting for msiha to come and waiting for government to lead and Also agreed that, you know, there was work to be done on the regulation side as well. I think that's also something uh, that was required. But now what we have in Pakistan is both SBP and SECP in their own domains when it comes to financial markets, you know, we start to see a change. Uh, We have started to see a very progressive change. So, for example, SECP has started to roll out a number of initiatives, a number of uh, regulations, uh, P2P lending, for example, crowdfunding, for example, mm-hmm. and they've also started a sandbox. So I think this kind of initiative was also missing from the from the two regulators, and we have started to see, you know, now this also coming forward. Of course, what needs to be seen is, you know, which entrepreneurs will take up the uh, license, and how will what will they do with that? What kind of uh, company will, they, will they be able to create, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Uh, so, so I think the ingredients are there, uh, Nadra's infrastructure is also available. Cost is always a question. Uh, but then again, I don't know of any innovation globally, which actually waited to happen because the cost of transaction was four so rupees a negligible amount. Yeah, uh, I think investors would even with a long-term view would be able to even fund that uh, in, in acquisition. I mean, there's so much acquisition cost that you know companies invest from their own side and re- recover it over the lifetime of the customer. So four rupee, you know, for a transaction, I I don't think that's a that's a big showstopper.
0: I want to touch on some of the use cases for Rust itself, right? Obviously, it's just getting started. I want your perspective on two, three years from now. Like, what are some use cases that you think personally mm-hmm. excite you about that that the possibilities are there? For example, you know, like you look at, I look at sitting in the United States. I look at something like an Affirm, which three, four years ago you had to go through a credit check before you got a loan, a payments mechanism for Purchasing a new Mac laptop, right? Or purchasing a new thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar consumer product. With a firm now, you can in real time get approved and get make payments over four, five, six months at a very good interest rate. And that is only possible because of innovation that has occurred in the back end side, right? In terms of being able to know who the consumer is, what their transaction history is, et cetera. So when you look at Rust and where it is today, obviously just getting started three years from now what type of use cases do you anticipate uh, becoming the reality in pakistan and how do you see that shaping or, or changing uh, pakistan's consumer not only consumer economy but just commerce in general
1: okay and and to answer that question you know allow me to to build up uh, sure with, with the with with the point that what is rast so rast in its core is Uh, uh, a real-time clearing and settlement system. It's it's built on, you know, universally accepted principles, which Gates Foundation researched uh, quite a few years ago, and they call it level one principles. So what they have done is they've studied development of uh, instant payment systems in many different countries, and they've studied what are the good practices, and they put together a kind of a, you know, a a to-do list. And some of those principles actually suggest that, you know, any payment uh, has to mimic cash. If it does not mimic cash, uh, you build lack of trust and you build complexity. So it is an instant payment system. It's a push-based system, which basically means that when I transfer money to you, just like cash, if I hand over to you 10 bucks, you have it, and I don't. The transaction is final. Uh, there is no reversal. There is no ambiguity. If you are not available, the transaction will not go through. If I don't have money, I can't, you know, send you the money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <clears throat> and and I think there's a big sort of uh, there has to be a big appreciation of the fact that having a payment system which does this kind of transaction uh, will lead to people's Trust being improving on the system that when I transfer money, it goes. It does not sort of go into some kind of limbo or suspense, and I don't know if it is I still have it or does not do not have it and have I sent it or not. It is a thin system, so it's it's, it's based on its core, <clears throat> you know, uh, an account to account transfer, <clears throat> and over time it will build <clears throat> different products and services either itself or will partner with other sort of uh, uh, services. And that's where, you know, the central bank uh, will figure out uh, a model of how to include the the private sector as well. So for example, the billers, you know, the the system does not have the ambition to aggregate the last mile to aggregate the billers. Uh, The biller aggregation will be done by other entities while for clearing and settlement, you know, the system will be uh, used. The other uh, great sort of uh, setup that the system provides is that it's also connected with the real-time gross settlement system (RTGS), which is an interbank settlement system. Which basically means that uh, all the banks are connected. So while the clearing is done, because the system is also connected with RTGS, so the settlement will also be done effortlessly. And you know, it's a it's a complete stack, you know, which 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 State Bank has now sort of provided. It's a combination of both. Uh, There were some private switches out there, but the settlement was done through batches. So it was done T plus day. Uh, This system, because it's connected and housed within Central Bank, it has the ability to run multiple settlement batches within a day. And a great benefit for that would be to merchants. Uh, If you look at the merchant schemes, Visa, Mastercard, even other sort of schemes, you see that the smaller merchants actually get paid uh, T plus one, T plus two, some cases even T plus three or four. We have been uh, we, we have been reported. So the merchant have to and and, and uh, because you know they have received money digitally. Does they feel that they are being penalized because now I have to invest from my working capital because I have to order my supplies the next day. You see. <laughs> so there was a counter disin- dis incentive for merchants, smaller merchants, to use digital payments. And hence, you know, if you go to Pakistan, so they would say, So they would not mm. want to use their merchant account because merchant account mein payment, joe, wo, it, it lands after many days. So this system will have the ability to settle, you know, many times a day. It, it, the decision has to be made still. Uh, UK, for example, the UK faster payment, a similar system settles three times a day. And if you make transaction all night, so in the seven in the morning, you get the first settlement. At 11, you get the second settlement. And whatever business you do till 3 p.m., you get the third settlement, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it will move the liquidity faster. It will move the sort of money faster. And I think one of the benefits that we will get out of this is that uh, the digital liquidity will increase. So people will then not be motivated or not be incentivized to uh, cash out the digital sort of liquidity that has been created. And that's a big struggle in Pakistan because our original liquidity is cash. We need to convert that into digital, and you know that requires some kind of motivation. You know. I remember, you know, in your in our previous sort of chat over email, you talked about demonetization that India has done, and yeah. does it require an exogenous shock like that or not? Uh, so, uh, I mean, that's a separate discussion, but you know, uh, so, so so that's the sort of issue uh, that the country faces, and that's the kind of uh, the business model that uh, Ross also faces. So, in terms of the use cases. Uh, There are three use cases that at the heart, this system will enable. It will enable a bulk, which basically means government paying its citizen. It could be welfare, it could be salaries or any business wanting to push salaries or vendor payments or anything, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that could be, uh, that could be done through RAST. Then it also enables a simple account to account transfer, also known as P2P. Uh, here, of course, one of the big issues is that if I want to do an honest transaction, for example, easy Passer to easy Passer, the experience is different. I can send money on a mobile number, but if there is an account that I'm sending, which is, for example, for that matter, you know, standard chartered, the experience is altogether different. So, a very dedicated customer will learn and understand and then on top of it each bank has its own alphanumeric kind of a magic number that they provide that i have to remember so what the system RAS will do is it will provide a centralized directory so an alias could be issued uh just like paypal just like uh, any other sort of centralized directory and of course you know initially it will not be a free form i think uh Customer's maturity and in Pakistani context has to be sort of, you know, uh, we have to look at that context as well. And even if we start with mobile number, so imagine sending a payment to a mobile number, which is not just EZPESA connected with Easy EZPESA account, but it's also connected with it, all the accounts. So it, it gives freedom to customers, and then it's the same experience, even if you do an honest transaction or an office transaction. The third thing, you know, which we hope that the result will happen is that the interchange would be zero MDR you talked about. Uh, Because this system has been developed through grant from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, So it's kind of a no capex model for the industry. So they should sort of, you know, use the hell out of it and load it with all kind of transactions and unless you know the system actually breaks down and depreciates it's kind of free uh oh. so so there the of course will be operational costs but hopefully you know a central bank and the banks will be able to absorb those costs and it will be very very nominal in my uh sort of understanding and the third use case is the merchant use case uh paying to a merchant is a pain and that's why merchants also prefer Receiving cash or receiving a, a money into their account because it they help it it helps them sort of avoid taxes. It also you know if they use a merchant account, the payment they actually receive payment from t plus one to t plus five in number of days. And then thirdly, you know we have had some uptake of QR code at merchant. But, you know, we see that that has kind of died down. And the reason is that it has added complexity, both at the merchant side and the consumer side. So I think uh, Pakistan may, and I've been a product manager as well, so I'm to blame as well, that we do a lot of copycat. We believe that because somebody else has done it, so I must do it. And the best innovation is to copy. So (laughs) both on price uh, competition as well as design. So without really understanding that what are the customer pain points and what are the merchant pain points, we launched QR code. And because it's not a superior experience, this is actually an experience which is worse than, you know, handing out cash or uh, using a credit card. So very quickly sort of, you know, it has, it has landed into problems uh there have been discussions on interoperability of qr code but true interoperability still has not been achieved um, the banks feel that you know if they acquire a merchant it is theirs and they want to make money on a closed loop and that's where you know all of these um, issues rast kind of busts and you know uh, hopefully central bank will come up with a merchant scheme which will be local, which will be universal, uh, you know, which will then promote, you know, digital payments. There's already a scheme for local uh, uh, cards which have been launched called PayPack. It's launched through OneLink. I think there's a decent uptake on it, uh, but of course we don't have enough POS machines in Pakistan to to swipe the card. So hence, digital acceptance is very very important. Also, Pakistan is a country where e-commerce is now started to increase. COVID has definitely pushed us into that direction. Uh, but a lot of people have figured out, a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, women, uh, youth have figured out that they could set up a business and serve customers, you know, uh, through e-commerce. So, so for them, it's also a, a big opportunity in times to come. That you know. Uh, a scheme a merchant scheme a payment acceptance scheme provided through ras could be the could be the enabler so i think uh, so from a payments perspective it will it will provide the whole stack what you refer to the use case of credit and you know you know th- that kind of a thing so the system has the capability uh, i think some of the other things have to fall in place for for a credit uh decision to to happen a of course the system should be filled with transactions only then the data is rich enough for credit analysis to be done but how the system is designed it will have the ability to connect with all in every entity so we have credit bureaus in pakistan uh free, i think and uh, they've already shown desire to connect with such a system And and I think it it will all depend on the players, how they decide how to develop each of this transaction. And I think, and and, and there is a discussion, very hot discussion going on that, why has State Bank done this? And it should have been done by the private sector. And I think, yeah, private sector should have done it, but then they should have done it rather than talking about it. The same goes with the fact that When you're developing these transactions, especially which require private sector engagement, will private sector step up, lead the innovation, figure out what needs to be done, what collaboration needs to be done, and do that? Or they will keep waiting for state bank to actually slap them with, you know, a regulation or something like this, that, okay, here go ahead and do this and do that. So, for example, last year, there was a ceiling which was provided on MDR because there was negative MDR cases. Uh, the market was so hung up on acquisition that uh, if you go to a merchant, he had 10 machines. And one would sort of think that, you know, why does he have 10 machines? Because one after the other, you know, people wanted to steal the market share. So, So I think the private sector is to take the blame and the credit both for it you know if they grow the market and if they don't grow the market they have to direct their sales team business development teams of where to focus and where not to focus and i think if 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 it is not utilized i think the regulators now active in market development so they will come up with uh, their own design and they will enforce it i wish to see a more uh, partnership model where banks and other sort of fintechs feel that this is the system that they can use and, and rely on. And then, you know, we are committed with state bank to develop whatever is required, uh, you know, and, uh, and and there are many investors who may be ready to invest even, yeah. you know, there on. And
0: I think that the rails are there now, right? So I think the first initial case I hope just in 2021 alone, we will see the pension lines outside banks just go away. I think that would be a big success if you stop seeing those lines because you have elderly people with coronavirus having to go every month collecting what is due from the government and standing in the heat or in the cold and you know going through this very terrible customer service experience. Um, you can just pay by rust. And I think that goes away. So it's a huge thing. And then I think on the merchant side, the competition in terms of, you know, the financial services industry itself, figuring out the fact that they don't need to chase after that same customer with 10 machines the rails are there. Let's focus on value addition. Let's focus on customer experience and use cases because that's the way to grow the entire market, right. And find, find new solutions to unmet needs. So um, one hopes that that continues to pick up. I think my most memorable experience was once when um, I was in India and I was out of cash and, you know, go to a Chaiwala and I'm, I have had the Chai already and he's like, Money And I'm like, oh crap, I forgot it in the hotel. He's like, you have a phone. I'm like, yeah. He's like scan the QR code and just pay me by, by whatever visa card that you have on your Apple. And I was like, wait, you can take that. And he's like, yeah, here's my QR code. It's interoperable. And I was like, wow, that's like a huge, huge thing. And I asked him like, do people use it a lot? He's like all the time Like, I don't use cash anymore because my accounting is now automated because some startup sold him a service to do the accounting. My GST invoices are weekly. I know how much I need to pay through that accounting software. And all of a sudden, you know, he was expecting he's going to expand uh, his store. Primarily because he had months of transactions data now to show that he was compliant, had a good business with a good revenue, and banks wanted to lend him money to open another shop. And that is phenomenal, right? At the bottom of the pyramid, you have this Chaiwala who, by adopting a QR code and months down the road, sees his business expanding because of the rails provided by the government. And I hope that Rast is able to do that as well.
1: Inshallah. Inshallah. No, totally agreed. I think it's, it's, it's a great example that you have quoted. And, you know, that's what the banks are supposed to do. The banking industry is supposed to be the backbone of the economics. Uh, and and, and, a, and, a, and a sort of a great sort of indicator of that is how much credit, you know, because you, you need leverage. So how much credit bank is offering consumer credit and retail credit and SME credit? It's negligible in Pakistan. So, banks' contribution to formal economy or growing economy, no, that's very, very, very negligible. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a it's a great innovation example that you've quoted. And hopefully, RAS will be able to provide similar, if not same.
0: From from your perspective, I know we're almost up with our time. Couple of final questions. What are some headwinds do you anticipate or risks that you see towards the adoption? I know we touched upon like, for example, demonetization in India being the shot in the arm To You know, it was growing, but not as much. And then obviously uh, demonetization happened. It's cost benefit analysis. We can spend hours debating, but the digital payments industry will say this was the shot in the arm that we needed to change the, change the future of digital payments in the country. Um, So what are some headwinds that you anticipate over the next few months in terms of adoption and what would your recommendation be in terms of navigating those challenges?
1: So I think one big headwind is that the the banks and the financial institutions who are going to be the biggest beneficiary, they keep on thinking that this is competition and do not and and use this this infrastructure selectively and and do not use it, uh, you know, aggressively. And there are many reasons why they would sort of uh, not use it. Uh, You see, it's it's just like that uh, village Kachok, it can only get populated, you know, if everybody sort of, you know, uh, decides to go there. So State Bank has kind of, Given a moral persuasion that you know it is mandated for everybody to connect with the with the with, with Ross. and I think if it required, they will also uh, provide uh, a mandate, uh, a circular as well that you have to connect you know with this system. So some of the some of the bigger institutions they might find that they are better off by uh, not opening up. Uh, that's a that's a key debate which is happening because RAS provides the true interoperability, so they might feel that I want to keep my five million or ten million customers to myself and not open up and not give them the uh opportunity uh, so 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 that's one sort of you know uh, issue lack of investment by the banks, by the financial institutions uh, in terms of you know being their own challenger and And there's enough evidence that you know while some of the banks may be upgrading their infrastructures and even upgrading their core banking, et cetera, et cetera, but do they really understand the meaning of digital experience? You know <laughs> and And we see a lot of bad examples. Uh, great products, bad experience, bad design, you know it leads to uh, customer dissatisfaction. And even in the market where people want to utilize the service and they're tech savvy and they have the mobile phone, they have the experience and they have everything. You know, they just sort of shy away because the experience is so bad. And I think think like with with,
0: with money, sorry to interrupt here, but that's a very important point. Like with money, especially like if I buy something on Amazon or Raz or whatever, and out of 10 transactions, one is bad. I still would go back because, you know, the customer service is there and there's a return process. It's inconvenient, but I can still be like, okay, the net benefit is fine. But with money, you can do a hundred great transactions. And if one transaction falls, you know, does not go through or screws over, um, you're not going to trust that institution again for a long, long time because it's your money. People, it's a more personal thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally. I agree with that. And then you see... um, with this infrastructure, because it couples with other infrastructure, so, so, so the transaction that you were talking about that you did with the wala with the there, you know, you had the phone. The phone had to be working. It needs to have internet. So the coverage that is provided for internet via mobile phone, the phone has to be affordable. Uh, so so the technology infrastructure, when it comes to connectivity, also has to keep up. Uh, I think there was somebody who actually mentioned that if we start having uh, transactions as we wish they could be, it might not choke the payment system, but it might choke the uh, telecom network. Uh, see, so, so that system, uh, I mean, uh, that connectivity also has to keep up. Telecoms themselves are struggling uh, with making a case for further investment. Uh, we see that the internet experience has been deteriorating. Uh, ironic uh, it is that the payment apps, the, the banking apps are still charged. Uh, I think the banking industry should come together and telecom industry should come together and you know at least make it zero rated. Uh, you know? because pakistan has 95% 98% prepaid market and people keep very low balance in their account it's a very low aapu market and you know the the so, so from all of those sort of factors have to sort of you know come together as well i think a key decision still need to be taken and we need, and time will tell will we have the push of financial inclusion and digital payments acceptance based on smartphone or on USSD. Uh, smartphone penetration has definitely increased, but uh, there are still a number of phones which require USSD uh, input uh, to access a mobile account because you know, they're not uh, smartphones. Uh, will, will the banks do something? Will fintechs innovate in that space as well? Uh, so I think that's these are sort of you know, dependencies of this system, uh, for it to really scale and achieve its uh, its potential, but I think if you if you look at what has been happening, uh, and I think that's a great development. So central bank and SCCP and even other sort of regulators uh, have started to come together. I think that's what we saw in India. Uh, that's how you create a stack. Uh, I think what they need is there was this thing in Pakistan last year, April, there will be a CIO and there will be CIO of Pakistan, just like CIO of Estonia and who will create the vision and you know, there's, there'll be a digital Pakistan sort of vision and what would that mean, et cetera, et cetera. We lost ground on that. Mm-hmm. I think you know the story so so whoever that sort of cio of pakistan is i think it's a it's a it's a great way to put the country towards a vision uh there has to be of course political sponsorship of such an agenda you know laptop mm-hmm. uh, basically you have to get together different government departments machineries ministries together You know, a great example is uh, the governor of State Bank. He leads a cross-functional effort every quarter. It's a meeting which has chairman from NADRA, chairman from PTA, FBR, you name it, and they are there. But then again, you know, in a four-hour long meeting, there's so much that you can, and then the bank presidents as well. Uh, the representatives there's so much sort of you can you can do so there has to be not a leadership meeting like this but a functional yep. you know working groups between let's say taxation and payments and i don't know uh, uh, pta and and then you figure out that uh, you know okay so we need to attack let's say kpk and within kpk how do we then cover Peshawar yeah. and for from digital payment? So, what can municipal government do? What can local government do? What can provincial government do? What can federal government do? And that's how you you know you divide different roles, et cetera, et cetera. So we have such examples. Uh, you know, where for example in Punjab PATV led this kind of a cross department initiated in, in previous government. And I think they did uh, did an amazing job. So we need some of these change makers in the in the public sector as well who could lead this effort. And uh, there are examples, there are people, but I think we just need that mandate. And if we have that mandate, uh, it's a difficult thing to do, but I think that's the way to go.
0: And I think you have to be out of the box and innovative, right? So mm. RAST was not there, but I remember last year having this conversation around coronavirus that when at that time, the fear was that The virus was, you know, initial research suggested was traveling through surfaces, not through Mm. people's breath. Um, Mm. This was before the mass mandates. And my thinking was that, you know, one creative way that hits multiple targets in in one policy measure was to make, at least for a short amount of time, and this can still be done now that RAST is there to increase adoption, just eliminate GST on digital transactions that go through the pipe. Why? Because you want, again, as you said, you need the motivation to go from cash into the digital ecosystem. The benefits of that are huge. So, convincing the FBR to say, look, if you're willing to eat up some revenue for the next few months to catalyze the adoption of this thing, when the consumer comes in, has a great experience, the experience is sticky, they stay there. So, if you incentivize almost like acquiring a customer into the digital economy, you eat up some of the cost for that. And then you can, you know, earn a lot more in GST, even with a lower rate, because the formalization is bigger, right? And I think those types of engagements across the board, and you don't have to do it nationally, as you said, do it in Peshawar, try something else in Lahore, try something else in Karachi, then discuss the lessons learned, and then move on from there. And I think in the private sector also, there's a need for that. You mentioned copycats and, you know, the QR code, but maybe someone, in the telecom sector, on the financial services sector in Pakistan, just needs to study Reliance, Jio, and Gio Mart across the border and see how they digitized everything, gave 4G experience, and built the entire commercial engine of the business on top mm-hmm. of that, realizing that rather than competing in this dog-eat-dog world, if they go after the whole country and give them a mobile phone, they're their customer, and all of a sudden, everything else follows from there.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I agree, I agree. I think that's where uh, we also fund a program which is called FinTech Disrupt Challenge. And we were just reviewing, uh, you know, what kind of uh, headway we made. And we were like, why did we do this? And we said, okay, the disruption is something which is required in the market. And I totally agree. I think what the country requires is not incremental thinking, not incremental revenue. Not incremental model. It requires a disruptive thinking. So we're hoping that you know with this draft coming uh, and providing those sort of rails. Now, if anybody wants to think that you know about the business model, you know it will it will provide that uh, you know necessary rails. And we we hope to sort of uh, I'm wishing for a great sort of uptake uh, of this system. It uh, will be a disaster if, if, if this if the uptake is very, very- No, scary. I
0: think this is going to be a phenomenal success. I think there's a lot of unmet demand and need, particularly from younger people, to do mm. these transactions online and be, make it more convenient. So wishing you all the best. This has been phenomenal in terms of the, the the work that you and the rest of the folks have already done. Before I let you go, what are two or three books that have deeply influenced you that you recommend uh, readers pick, listeners pick up and read?
1: I think there's one book that uh, I think has really shaped up my thinking in, in, in last few, quite a few years. And I keep it as at my bedside as well. And I usually carry it around. That's the tipping point. I think it's very important if you, if you are a change maker and if you uh, if you're part of any mission that requires change, it's very important to understand the dynamics of change and how change happens. And how do you bring sort of, you know, any mission, any movement to the stage where it reaches the tipping point uh, and, and then sort of it, it, it becomes sustainable and it, it sort of, you know, finds its own way so for me tipping point is something uh, maybe cliche but uh, every time that i've read that book uh, I, even the chapter that i read you know it, it kind of gives me a new direction of how to analyze change how to analyze the different aspects of change and then how do you influence because the whole idea is to bring it to a tipping point uh, and then tip it over and that's what we're trying to do
0: no, that's a great book. And, and I think it, it, the points it makes are fantastic. I remember Naseem Talib talking about the fact that to make that reach that tipping point, mathematically, you need 5% conversion. You don't need the whole world to come after you. If you get 5% of people to adopt something new and unique, the rest will very quickly follow. It's just exponential from there. And if you like that book, I would recommend you check out Upstream. Um, I'll email you the link to it because that talks about how do you go from day to day crisis management in certain issues where you're trying to change things and change is not happening. How do you go upstream in the problem and, and then fundamentally change? And again, I think those two books link together very nicely. So rihansab mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us again. Congratulations to you, your team and everyone else in Pakistan, who's worked on RAST, really exciting initiative. Wishing you all the best and have a good rest of the evening.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Zach.